Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. John Pitts, head of policy at Plaid, and I were talking about open finance and the interagency guidance on third-party due diligence. Now, I'm sure these are hot topics in your house like they are in ours, so hey, we thought we'd record some hot takes. Well, in the time it took to ship out some hot sauce, the Federal Reserve Bank decided to do its own hot takes and create a supervision program for novel activities. How novel of them. We had Jonah Crane, partner at Claros Group, former regulator and residence at the FinTech Innovation Lab, and longtime regulator at the U.S. Department of Treasury join us. Dara Tarkowski, partner at Actuate Law and host of the Tech on Reg podcast at Provoke.fm, was my co-host for the first half. Now, if that wasn't hot enough, the second half brings on Frank Rotman, co-founder of QED Investors and five times Forbes Midas Touch Investor. And we talk about building in the upcycle versus building in the now cycle. Frank brings scotch bonnet level heat. I've had the pleasure to learn from this self-proclaimed fintech junkie for over 20 years. And guess what? He still astounds me with new insights. Listen up and grab yourself some hot sauce. So when we started planning this show, it was around some FTC stuff, OCC and FDIC's interagency guidance on third-party due diligence. That stuff is such old news at this point of what has transpired over the last two months. I don't think we can dissect it any further, but it really does raise a fundamental question, which is, this is a very different environment and set of behaviors than we've seen from regulators in quite some time. And John, this is you know what you deal with on a global basis. Um, but I'm curious, like, am I just feeling it from the fintech and the bank side where they're feeling the pressure? How are you thinking the uh, approach by the regulatory bodies is shifting? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think there has been a shift, but I think that shift, and we'll talk about it a little bit here because I think there's different opinions in this group, is downstream of consumer and market shifts. So what I'd say we've seen at Plaid over the last 10 years, but especially the last five, is a dramatic change in consumer behavior in the direction of much heavier use of fintech. We've got 80% of consumers are now using at least one fintech. Over half of consumer loans are originated by a non-bank. We are getting close to over half of mortgages originated by non-banks. That's a dramatic change in the landscape. And most regulation still assumes a world where you know, you're going to your bank branch run by George Bailey and filling out a form on a piece of paper, right? And what I think we're feeling right now is a little bit of that rubber band having been stretched as far as it goes. And now the regulators are taking swift action, sort of recognizing that fintech is now a permanent and critical feature of consumers' lives. They're saying, okay, now we need to sort of make sure that that fits in our regulatory perimeter. And I think that change to a lot of fintechs feels like a big dramatic shift. I'd also say that it's an opportunity in that the fintechs who want to sort of front run that and get ahead of that 
world and not just sort of run from regulation forever have a huge competitive advantage here in meeting their customers' needs, but also meeting the needs of regulators in this new world. I applaud your optimism. <laughs> um, I would, so I'm so sorry, but I feel like, so from where I sit, I represent lots of clients. I represent banks, I represent fintechs, I represent data brokers, other participants, you know, in the consumer financial services space. And for me, Part of me feels like if that was really what they wanted, if they really wanted to try to keep pace with the technology and meet the consumers where the consumers already were, they wouldn't be taking initiatives to sort of like, I don't know, get rid of the Office of Innovation or stop a lot of initiatives that they had previously, you know, initiated during Director Craninger's, uh, you know, tenure at the CFPB. So unfortunately for me, I know that the rhetoric that comes out of a lot of the regulatory bodies sounds right, but in practice, it's not really what they're doing um, because you can't enforce first and write rules second, which is exactly what I think what many of the regulatory bodies in financial services are doing. Query whether or not that's like a complete function of our completely dysfunctional Congress. We don't even have enough time to get to get into that. I sympathize with a lot of the regulators. They're stuck between rocks and hard places. But even when initiatives that they're taking, like the CFPB's take on junk fees, for example, even when they see it start working, they double down, right? It's like, okay, we we got Bank of America's consent decree. We got Regents' consent decree. Message received. But even though we're we're doing what we say we're supposed to be doing, we're still going to press on the enforcement without actually giving any real guidance as to why anything might be a UDAP. So to me, I can only define that as activist in sort of my mind and as, you know, an advocate for so many, you know, parties in the financial services industry. I have to view my representation of them through that lens too, because in my view, actions speak louder than words and we see what's happening. You know, I think, John, you were onto something in terms of identifying the shift in consumer behavior. Um, and I would argue that that's exactly why we created the CFPB. I mean, when we were working on the CFPB and Dodd-Frank, that was the idea was to have a single regulator focused on the on consumers and applying to banks and non-banks and to sort of have consistent standards across across the board but i think the the shift in approach by the regulators is quite notable at some level you could argue it's just the normal cranking of the bureaucratic machinery if you look at the level of enforcement actions for example uh, they dipped way down in the early Trump years, and everybody was convinced it was a conspiracy to let everybody off the hook. But by the end of the Trump administration under Craninger, the bureau was back to taking, you know, sort of a normal quote level of enforcement actions relative to even under Cordray. And some of the uh, innovation initiatives that you mentioned, Dara, those date back to Cordray, in fact. Um, so I think what you've really seen over the last seven years is the bloom coming off the rose for fintech in the political space. And because it's growing so quickly, regulators worried that they're getting behind the curve and really trying to play catch up in a number of ways. I think the key question for the Bureau here will be whether they're pushing their luck a little bit. And I think um, acting, you know, enforcement first and regulations later uh, puts them on somewhat thin ice in certain cases. 
And I think, um, you know, we've seen a lot of very informal efforts by this bureau. I used to call it regulation by blog post. And, you know, we'll have to see, <laughs> we'll have to see if this doesn't come back to bite them. Obviously, um, you know, there are at least a, a handful of court cases out there that uh, may clip the bureau's wings. Well, well at least they're not regulating by tweet. So there is that. <laughs> uh, it's not tweets anymore. They're X's, right? Like they're just... They're, they're just X's now. Um, but I actually do think it's funny. So there was a recent, literally just last week, um, the Southern District, a court in the Southern District of New York um, stayed another CFPB enforcement action pending resolution of uh, the Supreme Court's decision on uh, the constitutionality of their funding structure. So that whole agency is at a very, very strange standstill. And I can tell you based on like the private non-public investigations, um, you know, that I'm privy to. It's just this bizarre sort of dance between, you know, how many consent decrees can we like get on file before, you know, before the Supreme Court decision comes out? Because, you know, if the decree is by consent, these people can't come back and complain. So it's a, it's really sort of a weird strategy shift into how a lot of People are interacting with those regulators, which is why the interagency relationships are actually so interesting and fascinating right now. We don't have those issues with sort of the state's attorneys general, which the CFPB has like very publicly deputized to do their work on their behalf. So the whole situation with the existing MOUs, the way the regulators are working together, um, I think is more important now than it than it's ever been before. I mean, you all probably track this more closely than I do, but it feels like we've seen more interagency work in publication than we have, you know, in probably the last five years combined in terms of actually beginning to sit down as opposed to oftentimes things that you can say, if not directly contradictory, it at least was directly ambiguous as to which to follow. So I think that's exactly right. Although I think some of the ambiguity is not conflict. It is the regulator saying, we thought we had a way we wanted to deal with this. The facts on the ground have outrun us. And now we have a different way, or we want to kick the ball back to you and tell you how to figure it out. I mean, uh, let's let's look at the interagency third-party risk management guidance, which I think is a perfect example of that dynamic. Um, you had some FAQs from the OCC saying, hey, we recognize there's new and complex uh, relationships between banks and fintechs. We're going to give you some, some real specifics on what that interaction should look like. And I think uh, a lot of the market reaction I heard to that uh, careful, quiet market reaction was, we don't think you got these quite right, right? We don't think these really capture what the dynamic is between fintechs and banks. Uh, and we don't think these are fit for purpose in... Uh, the way the market is evolving. The interesting thing to me is the interagency guidance specifically pulled back that OCC FAQ and replaced it with everyone just needs to do risk-based analysis. And the market reaction to that has been, well, this was helpful in one direction and deeply unhelpful in another direction because now we don't know what we're supposed to do. And the question, and I think, you know, Dara, this might be sort of a uh, get into the philosophical element of this is like, is that space genuinely meant for, okay, banks need to figure out what this relationship looks like, and we understand that more flexibility is needed, or is it space for regulation by enforcement? And I will say, to me, 
one of the things that's actually promising about offices of innovation starting to potentially wind down is the offices of innovation never really worked that well when they were separate from the exam teams. What I like about what, for example, the Fed has recently announced is this idea of we are bringing bringing some of these new innovations into the core of our regulatory approach because that's the only way it works. That's the only way you don't have inconsistent answers across the board. I think there's a very big TBD on it. I think it's what makes the area these, this area so interesting to watch right now. But also, I can understand how that can be tough for companies that are either on the wrong side of it or that have thought, you know, as fintechs, they didn't really need to invest in their regulator relationships or in their regulatory approach because, you know, they were just outside of that perimeter and always would be. I totally, I 150% get what you're saying. The part of it that sort of becomes very disconnected for me, it's okay. We were sort of like pretending to have these innovation initiatives before, whether or not they were terribly meaningful or productive, completely separate question. But at least there was some sort of optics of trying. There were, there were, there was the disclosure sandbox that you know, one or two companies did participate in, you know, sort of those letters of protection have been have been undone and revoked, but it hasn't really been replaced by anything else meaningful, you know, minus the, you know, the example that you just gave, having sat through a number of supervisory exams, third party uh, vendor oversight is not new. I don't know any financial institution who just doesn't oversee their third party, you know, their third party vendors. And for the to be published in the federal register that like institutions need to take a risk-based approach. Yeah, we know they need to take a risk-based approach. Every organization's risk tolerance is wildly different, right? Um, and there's no real set of criteria about what's the appropriate amount of risk to take. How do you right-size it based on the size of the financial institution? So I agree with you that it does sort of feel like we've moved back, like we've definitely moved backwards in that regard. And I also sort of, as someone who has worked for over a decade on the legal and compliance side in the space, it sort of presupposes this notion that there's nothing being done or that a fintech or another participant isn't otherwise regulated, which everyone who's on the show knows that's nonsense. It, it, it's, you know, it's beyond nonsense. So many fintechs instead of being able to have you you know national licensure and registration are playing sort of like the 50 state whack-a-moles with all of the different licenses that they need money transmission licenses lender licenses mortgage licenses whatever it may be so they're not just regulated once they're regulated 50 times um and a lot of that work has already been done but without some clear parameters about what the agencies actually want it to look like, I think we're exactly back where we started. And it's going to be one of the situations where, you know, back in the day, what did the Supreme Court say? We're not really sure how to define pornography, but we'll know it when we see it. <laughs> and that's exactly where I feel like these third party relationships are at right now. So I actually think you made an incredibly important point there. And I just want to respond to it really quickly uh, and, and not jump too much in front of Jonah there. But yeah, fintech is regulated all over the place, right? Yeah. I think, though, we have not always done the best job of highlighting that fact as an industry. And what I know we have not done a good enough job of is saying, hey, 
here is how we are regulated. Let us really clearly present that to the federal regulators who may not as be fam- may not be as familiar with us and some suggest some ideas for how that can be incorporated into a rational federal regulatory regime that interacts with that state regulatory regime. I I actually feel like we have not necessarily done enough there. And again, you're you're gonna definitely tar me with being too optimistic over and over again in this conversation, but I think that is an area of opportunity where fintechs really pushing that line now as the federal regulators are figuring out how they want to sort of embrace the uh, the industry and the warmth of their perimeter uh, it is an opportunity, not a risk necessarily. If you are proactive about it. Somebody on the somebody in the session needs to be the optimist. I'm glad it's you. <laughs> Well, I mean, if we start with, we do need to recognize regulatory bodies do exist for good reason, right? And there has been plenty of harm that's been done. And I think one of the areas, and Dara, you and I might disagree on this. Well, in general, I don't like regulation through enforcement. I do sometimes feel that it can be a better way of doing minor course corrections because the bureaucracy takes way too long to make those course corrections actually take place and then throw in all of the dysfunction on top of this, right? Like, I feel like some minor pressure will drive industry to change some of this. One of my favorite examples, you know, top of mind right now, authorized push payment as a place that, you know, I don't love, you know, what's happening on, you know, within committees right now in Congress related to it. But if the industry isn't going to go fix it, it's going to go that direction, right? I'm going to pause. I just realized I touched the third rail of APP. You know me. APP, you know me. Sorry. I was just going to jump in real quick, and I'm sure others have more to say on this. I think, I mean, from where I sit, the direction of travel there is fairly clear in that it's going to be really hard uh, at the end of the day as push payments become more prevalent for regulators and lawmakers to, um, you know, not do what they can to ensure that there's accountability there for, you know, what effectively become unauthorized payments. And that's a really difficult, murky world right now. Um, and different different companies are taking different approaches to, to navigating it. So I think there's, um, you know, there's a long way between here and where we land, I think. But I, at least from where I sit, the direction of travel seems clear because, um, as the volume of, of, of push payments uh, accelerates, if the levels of fraud, uh, you know, don't get seriously curtailed, there's going to be, uh, you know, real hell to pay. And Jonah, I think it's it's more than that. You know, we we talked earlier about sort of the regulators are responding to something here. Like we were all watching, I'm sure, what happened with Zell last summer, right? Where like you hit a critical mass of consumer complaint and consumer concern on push payments. And suddenly it is no longer a, hey, the industry has an opportunity to solve this. It is a the blunt tool of Congress and uh, and tweets or X's, Dara, uh, and, and CFPB blog posts is going to come up with an answer. And it's probably not the answer that is optimal for everyone, but you're going to get an answer. And so like Plaid's approach in thinking about this on these payments is, we need to be thinking now about what the fraud prevention tools are for when that critical mass comes. Um, 
including what the might the right regulations might be, because if we don't think about what those solutions are and what the right consumer protections might be, someone else is going to come up with them for us, and they're going to come up with those answers in a crisis. And um, Jonah, despite your perfect record of coming up with the right answers in a crisis, my my general default is that answers in a crisis are never as good as answers in sort of a calm anticipation of a obvious crisis looming on the future. And I think we've got that case with payments. We know that fraud in real-time payments is going to be very different and consumers are going to react to it very differently than they have to credit card, debit, or ACH fraud in the past because the rails work differently. And so, like, think ahead, plan for that environment. That is, that is certainly what we're doing. Well, so I I actually agree with what all three of you have said. I just have a slightly different bend on it. There is a difference between what the industry needs to do to continue to sort of like operate, make money. Fraud is bad for everyone, including all of the institutions that are involved in it. So there's all sorts of economic, business, rational solutions, including, by the way, just doing the right thing. We never want to see a situation where we know consumers are being defrauded and we are not acting appropriately. There is a different thing to creating new rules via consent decrees and enforcement actions and regulating via blog posts. Maybe they're nice nudges and good reminders saying, hey, this is this is good information that we have. We need industry to respond privately and we need industry to respond quickly because we know industry can respond more quickly than we can respond. Where I, where I believe the line gets crossed and what I believe is inappropriate is Blog posts aren't rules. You can't reference a blog post as guidance during an enforcement uh, proceeding, during an investigation, uh, as part of a supervisory exam, and then hold companies' feet to the fire about like, well, you know, we published a blog post about it. I don't care. There, You want to enforce laws. You want to enforce Reggie. You want to enforce UDAP. Fine. But then you also have to enforce, I don't know, the Administrative Actions Act and all the other rulemaking processes that you as an agency need to go through in order to make what are good ideas, actual rules and regulations that you can then hold companies accountable for. I don't appreciate like as a legal practitioner, I don't appreciate the step skipping. And those are very, very important steps. And Congress put them in place for a reason. So that's the part that sucks. Um, I don't mind a good nudge every now and again being like, yo, if you're not doing this, this is a really good idea to do. And because there are so few litigated enforcement actions, we get very little case law on actual interpretation of what lots of these provisions mean. So sometimes enforcement actions are the only sort of area we have to look to. But I would also bear in mind that these are prefabbed, highly negotiated agreements that are supposed to look a certain way for the general public. So it's not actual legal interpretation. This is not a judge or a jury saying this is what the law means. Nobody's done that. These are two private parties who've decided what they want to agree to in a specific order. I agree that we shouldn't be skipping steps, but we need to pick up the pace on how we take these steps and live with a level of incrementalism that historically the industry doesn't like incrementalism. But John, to your point around what we do and how it works when it hits the ground often are two separate things. So I think as an industry, we need to expect and allow regulators to do some incremental steps, realize they're not right, change it. We can't all cry and say, oh, you changed the rules on us. You thought it was X and you changed it to Y that it's just part of how we're going to have to work in such a speedy world. And you know, we're talking about you know, the 
authorized push payment fraud and payments is fundamentally changing. Let's, you know, the next hardest thing we need to be getting ahead of is open banking is arriving on the shores of the US. And that is a lowercase O, a lowercase B, that it it is not, you know, regulated as in the EU, but open data is here. And people's ownership over their data, I think, is not being disputed except by some community banks, you know, that want to pretend they own the data that you generated. But that moves us into a world where, you know, LLMs and AI have exploded on top of this. And I think we need to talk about what regulators need to be thinking about to start getting ahead. What do private uh, industries need to be thinking about to get ahead on how we protect data, how we protect customers? So I guess I should jump in first uh, with that one, since I probably spend more time thinking about open banking than any healthy person uh, should. Um and to me, there's a pretty clear answer, which is consumer controls. Um, you know, it is you don't own something unless you can control how it is being used. And the idea that open banking uh, just turns on a spigot of data uh, out to the universe is is. I think a deeply wrongheaded and misunderstanding. Not that you uh, suggested that, Jason, but it's like it's a there are there are there are some incumbents who uh, want you to think about open banking that way. It's yeah. not the right way of thinking about it. Um, and so the quality of controls that are built for consumers, uh, I think, is going to directly correlate with the amount of trust and willingness of consumers to get the advantages that come from open banking. And so uh, here at Plaid. We think of those controls as as fundamental to access. It is as important to be able to say this is not what I want to happen with my data as what I uh, this is what I do want to have happen with my data. And I think when it comes to sort of some of the uh, bigger AI boogeymen or the you know uh, where is the data going to go, those controls are fundamental and need to be built in at the ground infrastructure in order to make the system function correctly. Uh, and I think will ultimately be the remedy that curtails some of those sort of parade of horrible things that uh, that someone might see coming down the pike. Yeah. John, as you, as you know, I mean, I fully agree that, you know, consumer control is sort of the touchstone here. Um, I, you know, my sort of lame phrase about it has always been that we need to figure out how to put consumers in control without putting them on the hook. Um, so how do they control their data? But, you know, it's not sort of, well, you're on your own if something goes wrong, right? There still need to be accountable parties all down the chain. I think if you think about that basic principle and line it up to, you know, this new world of LLMs, um, just think about the recent Zoom example where, you know, Zoom or recording on Zoom and Zoom changed their terms in ways that suggested they could use any data uh, used in a Zoom context to train their models and so forth, right? Um, now, I guess technically users would have consented to that because it would have been included in you know some dozen page uh, um, you know fine print that they clicked OK on. I think the question is how, in, in particular, with, you know, with respect to financial data, how granular do we want those consumer controls to be, or how do we set up? Um, you know, how do we set up a, a a a set of rules or principles that you know articulate a line, right? So I, the consumer, agree for to share my data for a particular purpose. You know, what are the broader use cases? 
can some parts of my data be used for, for example, to train an underwriting model? Uh, can it be done on a, you know, on an anonymized basis so that some of my data can be used, but not the PII? I think we have to figure these things out and we have to figure them out in a hurry. Um, the Bureau has their 1033 rulemaking coming. That's good news. Um, but I think the collision of this, you know, sort of proliferation of open banking, which I think has been a good thing and, and really a catalyst for just an enormous amount of innovation, uh, but in a new world of LLMs where I think the the desire and the incentive to hoover up a lot of data or just expanding, um, I think it'd be a good thing to get on top of. Oh, Jason, you gave me an opportunity to talk about terms and conditions and disclosures and consent, and I've gotten so excited. Get ready, everyone. So there has been so much thinking litigation, case law, and argument about the adequacy of disclosures for consumer protection purposes generally. I think the 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 running the running joke is is that they're mandated, we have to have them, and we know that they don't work, right? Um, so that's fine. We're gonna go ahead and check that box, fully well knowing that they don't actually present inform consumers or protect them. But Part of the way I think the the general shift in privacy regulation and legislation, which is completely, you know, it goes hand in hand with every open banking conversation that I have with every client, um, really stems from the idea of, as John said, choice and control. So if we break out disclosures and even, you know, even if Jonah, we can't get to the point where we're as granular per piece of data, what we can do with what, there are ways that I've advised clients to sort of break up and rather than putting together these long multi-pages contracts of adhesion, as some plaintiff's lawyers might call them, making those choices quite affirmative, right? Affirmative disclosure, affirmative choice and consent. And I know that, you know, UI and UX teams and developers hate this because it creates friction in process. And I know that like that's the constant sort of battle and balance that we're trying to strike. Um, but we can make them pretty and we can make it clear. Um, and we have to sort of take more of a European GDPR sort of approach as to what you can and cannot do with my data. And then with those types of disclosures and protections, regulators actually have very, very little that they can then later push back on. It's like we could not have made this easier. And we and I try to think about it and like marry that nice user experience with actually getting them the information that they need rather than have it be just like some page that's buried, you know, in the footer of your website so they can go read, you know, an 87 page privacy policy, you know, that some lawyer, you know, charged an arm and a leg to to, to draft for them. But that doesn't really sort of get the job done. Um and un the unfortunate part is that like, we know that already, we know that disclosures don't work. So we've got to figure out a different way to do it because it's actually better for any everyone. It's clearer for consumers and then it offers companies um, far more protection than they otherwise would have had with some of the, the basic published privacy policies. I would argue the only losers in that case are the lawyers that have all of the fun of both creating the 70 pages of disclosures that nobody actually can make heads or tails of only to get to it was found to be insufficient because nobody actually understood it in the first place. And therefore, now let's actually go, you know, battle that out. <laughs> well, you're assuming that lawyers like to have fun. And with the exception of me, I don't I don't necessarily know that that's the case. I think there are definitely too many lawyers and recovering lawyers on this call as it is. But uh, I, I will say, Jason, like, you made an important point there, which is uh, 
Director Chopra has also said he wants the 1033 rule to be a rule that you don't need lawyers for. Like very explicitly said, I don't want anyone hiring lawyers for compliance on this rule. And what that suggests to me is that, you know, he's thinking about things. Uh, uh, I would never say a regulator is thinking about the same things the way we are, but like it aligns with our approach at Plaid, which is, you know, there are immense benefits for consumers in open banking. Those 100%. benefits will only be realized if there is trust in the system. And that trust depends on consumer control, consumer choice, not on 70-page disclosures. And so build to the environment that builds that trust. Don't rely on lawyers to get it done for you. Yeah. Um, the head of product at Mantle, the account opening software, Colleen Wilson's a good friend, former neighbor in Chicago. When she took the role, calls me up, she goes, I need to get smart on all the banking compliance related to account opening. I'm like, why do you, what, what do you want with that? She goes, I'm putting together a training program for all of my product managers. And my mantra is going to be, if it's not compliant, it's not actually a product. That instead of we define and design beautiful user experiences and user UIs, and then go fight with compliance about what needs to be added to it, she goes, we're breaking that. She goes, compliance needs to be embedded into the product itself. Well so, said, Colleen. Well said, Colleen. You didn't well even said, know. Colleen. And I don't even think she's back from maternity leave. So let's go <laughs> blow up her Twitter. You know, as we as we bring this to a close, I want to talk a little bit about we we hit the how regulators have changed their stance towards being proactive. And John, you hinted at this. I think it is worth driving. Let's go around the horn and talk about how the industry needs to be thinking about the changing stance and how technology is impacting that, how the change regulatory stance has changed that. Jonah, why don't we start with you? Sure. I mean, I always start from the same place, which is you, you have to try your best to understand what what the goals the regulators have are, you know, what are their statutory missions and statutory objectives? What are the priorities that the regulators have laid out? And these things are going to happen in, you know, long-term, um, you know, sort of long-term waves and short-term waves, right? And as, uh, you know, as a company or an industry, you have to figure out, listen, if there's a long-term wave coming our way, how do we get ahead of it? Much to the point that John was making earlier. Um, and if there are some short-term waves and they're unfavorable for the industry, it's more, how do we survive this and get through this and sort of live to fight another day? Um, and I think there are, you know, some of the issues that we talked about today are more in the nature of sort of long-term, um, you know, I think just clear first principles uh, regulation, right? So third-party risk management the principle is that the bank is always going to be, you know, at the end of the day on the hook for the activities of their service providers. Um, you know, that's a, a longstanding principle. It's not going to go away. So, you know, figuring out how you uh, ensure that you are acting in a manner consistent with that uh, would behoove you. Um, I think, you know, some of the, um, you know, activity in sort of unofficial <laughs> guidance through blog posts and, and so forth that other regulators have engaged in, you know, you're going to have to figure out how much of that you think is uh, sort of here to stay and how much is not. And I also think, you know, figure out how much is, you know, what can you live with? Like, what can your business actually live with um, and and really figure out where to where to prioritize? So I, I wish there was like a really easy answer there, um, but a lot of it comes down to, to business and business model um, and thinking about how you can, you know, what, what can you live with and what do you need to, where do you need to sort of cut off a limb to survive? And where do you maybe just try to hide under a rock for a little while and wait it out? 
So, okay. I have so much to respond to. I'm going to self-edit. <laughs> this will be great. Um, so I think that what I would start by saying is that so much of the time, legal and compliance are sort of viewed as obstacles to business units. Um, and I think it's just very important for all stakeholders in a company, including compliance and legal, to remember that like these are not charitable endeavors, right? These are these are organizations that are designed to be profitable and fuel the economy and provide very valuable services um, to, you know, hundreds of millions of people. Um, and they're necessary for our economy to keep functioning. That being said, if you listen to every single thing every lawyer and compliance person tells you, you will be out of business. So going back to uh, what Jonah said about figure out what you can live with and figure out which limb or finger or toe you can spare. That's that's really exactly right. There's um, we always can't let perfect be the enemy of good or good enough, um, particularly in an unclear regulatory environment where you're just trying to stay below the radars. And just a general first do no harm principles. Nobody nobody is here. I mean, I nobody here, and I mean like physically here on this call, is trying to do anything um, to harm consumers. Um, there are true bad actors out there. And part of me really wishes the regulators would focus on those true, true bad actors, not companies who are legitimately trying to get it right, but may misstep, you know, sort of on their way to trying to do the right thing. Um, keep an eye on, you know, sort of the regulatory guidance. And those blog posts are terribly interesting, even if they're not binding, um, to just understand what's sort of on the regulators top of mind, to just be aware if you do get, you know, your 60 day exam notice, or if you do have, you know, other exam examinations coming up, you need to know sort of what the chatter is all about. Um, and then really, you know, use your legal teams as your advocates in, in those situations. And even if they're not physically there, use them as puppets behind the scenes, because the things that you do and say during those processes make a world of difference. So I guess I'll bring it home uh, by trying to drop a little bit from the philosophical to, to the practical uh, and just sort of Looking at the world as it is and, and what we've seen from regulators, I'd say you can draw the following conclusion. Um, fintechs and banks are now fully interdependent on each other. And I don't think fintechs necessarily love that. I know banks don't necessarily love it, like eh, across the board. Um, but it is the reality, and it's a reality that I see regulators recognizing as a permanent state of affairs. And if that inter interdependence and need to collaborate is permanent, it's going to be permanent on regulation as well, because regulators are going to increasingly be part of that relationship, which is a permanent and necessary relationship. And so I think everyone needs to be thinking very actively, who is my partner in this engagement with regulation? And it's not a senior and junior partner, which I think has been the dynamic for a long time. It is a closer to even partnership, uh, maybe even an even partnership, uh, though bank listeners, please don't get upset with me when I say that. Um, and that dynamic is what the future looks like. And in that dynamic, who you pick as your partner, both as a fintech, who you pick as your bank, and as a bank, who you pick as a fintech is maybe one of the most critical decisions you're going to be making as you do business. And, and let me just give like a, another practical example of that. API adoption. In a 1033 rule, the CFPB is going to make every FI have an API for accessing data. Right now, maybe 15 banks have built their own APIs. 
in the last year, Plaid has partnered with some platforms to make APIs available to over 3,000 banks through partnership, as opposed to each one bespoke building it themselves. That's a really different dynamic from the, like, each bank needs to build this themselves, and that's the way the world has always worked. We are in a network partnership-first-based relationship world now with banks and fintechs, and that type of we know you are going to have to do this, therefore let us build something that makes it easier for you to do it and easier to engage with your regulator is I think a critical skill to have for any fintech that wants to continue to thrive in this new environment and is where the investment should be going. So uh, partnerships are the key and partnerships with the regulator as a known third in that Thruple, I guess I'll say, is, is the essential way to think about it. Yeah. I, I oh, think now, partner- now I ahead, have Darren. a mental image that I don't want. You said the word <laughs> thruple. So putting a bow on that, I, I think part of what I want to underscore what you just said, John, is we often look at regulators and participants in an industry should never be too cozy. Right, regardless whether it be pharmaceuticals, financial services, you know, FDA, you, you name it. Right, I think the world is changing and how we need to approach that. Just given the speed that it does need, not only need to be a little bit less adversarial and how that goes, but the data is going to need to flow across all three parties. Right. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say it, but it's a data menage a trois amongst regulators. Yeah, I went there, Dara. Thank <laughs> uh, you. Right, I'm, right I'm, where I'm so glad. the data and the speed with which we need to learn and share our learnings to get ahead of problems that it, you know, one of the biggest issues at this pace of change and acceleration we're talking about on multiple fronts, if we're not actually continuously monitoring and adopting, it becomes a big deal that is actually very difficult to put that genie back in the bottle. Look forward to revisiting this conversation. Well, probably in about two weeks when there is some other blog post, uh, X, (laughs) thread, you name it. But thank you all for sharing your wisdom about the pace of change and regulation. Thank Thank you. Thank you. This show is brought to you by Alloy Labs. As much as we love talking on the show, we believe that action is more valuable than talk. Alloy Labs is the industry leader in helping fearless bankers drive exponential growth through collaboration, exclusive partnerships, and powerful network effects that give them an unfair advantage. Learn more at AlloyLabs.com. Alloy Labs. Banking Unbound. So this is going to be particularly spicy because I love that you always bring the heat, whether that be on social media platforms, in conversations or other. But I love, too, that we're having Caribbean representation here, Frank, that what did you bring from a hot sauce perspective from the land of the Scotch bonnet? So I am in Grand Cayman right now and decided that uh, I have three sauces. I have a very hot uh, crushed scotch bonnet sauce, which is very thick, and uh, there's a lot of raw pepper. Is that the one with like the real chunks of the scotch bonnet in it? That... Huge, huge chunks of scotch bonnet and yeah. seeds. 
Yeah. Um, I love that when it gets wedged in your teeth and you don't realize it's there until a little bit later and it's like suddenly in the back of your throat and you're dying. It, it, it keeps giving. Um, so I have a chili habanero uh, Caribbean Calypso sauce, which is very nice. And then I have a rum faya sauce uh, here, which is just a bunch of different Caribbean peppers. Some of them are pretty hot. So a little bit of sweetness to that one, though. All right. Well, in addition to my usual hot takes in honor of where you are, I got some of my papaya habanero from the islands here. One Very good. Smuggled out. Well, let's kick this off that, you know, QED and you, I remember when we first met, you were at Capital One and so strategic in all things that you do. And I think you've really just built the entire firm. There's not a single partner that I've met there that isn't highly strategic in how they think about the world. And being so thesis led, but I've got to wonder at some point in all of the madness in fintech that has you know really been up until you know the, the most recent months. Did you ever question yourselves? Like, did you and Nigel ever look at each other and go, like, maybe we're the crazy ones? Yeah, I mean, it's a good place to start because the answer to that question is yes. So, um, yeah, I would call the the period of peak madness really started in 2017 and just kept accelerating all the way through 2021. Yeah, and you know, it's it's pretty hard when you're out in the market and you're uh, trying to compete for deals and find the best founders. When you see other investors kind of paying attention to the thing that was kind of your backyard that other people didn't understand, you kind of had the space to yourself, and now you're seeing. A lot of people come in and say, fintech is a real thing. We want to start investing in fintech. Let's start writing you know, expensive term sheets into these companies because the outcomes can be really big. So all of a sudden, we saw the space was crowded. People started pouring in. Term sheets started to get thrown around at valuations that just really didn't make sense to us. And for a while, we actually fought it. You know, We were in a little bit of denial. And I think uh, the advantage that we had is that we could put a term sheet out. And if it was low, the founder wouldn't just turn us away. They liked us enough that they would have a conversation with us and say, hey, hey, guys, like we, we really would love to take your term sheet, but you're off market. Yeah. And we had enough of these off market conversations where we had to keep stretching our thinking and, you know, reevaluate the terms that we would give to founders and how much we would pay that eventually I said, wow. Like every conversation is turning into our price is the wrong price. Yeah. So what what are we missing here? Either everyone else is right and we're wrong, or we're right and everyone else is wrong. And I have to admit, towards the the peak of the super cycle, you kind of give in. And at some point you say, This is the new world. Um, the art of what's possible has been discovered. Big outcomes are possible in the public markets. Gigantic companies can be built. Uh, these narrative backwards investments make a lot of sense if you actually believe there are these big outcomes. And, you know, for a period of about a year, you know, we were there along with everyone else investing in these companies and being a little bit less price sensitive than we were used to. But it, we were constantly looking in the mirror wondering what was going on. Well, so do you just revert? Yeah, let's heat this up. Do you Here just revert back to what you were pre-2017 or something structurally changed in the market and let's unpack that because has it changed it fintech broadly and then vc specifically as we we think about how those worlds move yeah so i have a very basic view of how companies are built right so 
you start out with five major statements when you first fund a company or a company is presenting to you. You have a problem statement, you have a solution statement, you have a go-to-market motion statement, you have a founder or founding team market fit statement, and you have a financial statement, right? Like those are the five big things that you're trying to actually figure out with the company. And the financial statement is basically this magical thing that if all the assumptions in it come true, you build this amazing business. So the goal is for as little money and as little time as possible to prove out whether you're on track or you're off track to building that magical business. And I think one of the big differences in, you know, kind of the past, uh, then we went into super cycle and now we're in this new world. Um, But the difference was in the past, there was a lot of discipline about turning over cards, making sure your learning agenda was very solid, making sure that you were de-risking businesses and stages. And, you know, there was this nice hovering personality that was hanging around called Darwin. And if you ended up generating what I call anti-proof instead of proof, so you did something and it came out, you know, on the wrong side of what you'd like to see, you generated anti-proof that said something isn't quite right with this business or something isn't quite right with how we've configured it or how we're attacking the market or how we're presenting our product. And if you had enough anti-proof, a business would die, right? It wasn't able to attract more funding. It wasn't able to sell itself like you had anti-proof. But if you're de-risking a business in stages, you would be generating proof that you are on the right track to building a magical business. And I think there is just a lot more discipline when you go back to the the early part of when we started investing, which was 2008, to peak madness where everything was narrative-based. Yeah, It was describing the outcome and then saying, this is a big company, therefore we deserve more capital. Um, it was playing a game of, I'll call it revenue arbitrage, where if you had twice as much revenue, you were twice as valuable a company, regardless of how hard it was to get that doubling. Right. Um, so there were all these things going on that just enabled Darwin to go on vacation for a while and then have money pour into the ecosystem and continue justifying putting money in the company by being a narrative backwards, you know, view of what could be built. And it feels like Darwin isn't just back. The Grim Reaper has arrived, um, you know, for a lot of this. But what happens to some of these narrative based companies? that raise massive amounts of capital at too high of a price. You, know, How does that play out in your mind? Well, a lot of it depends on if the bones of the company are good and if they raised enough money at the right time that they're still sitting on cash, right? So there are going to be companies that look very much alike, but one of them raised you know, before uh, the world corrected and the other tried to raise money after the world corrected. The first one might be able to survive and the second one might not. Could be an almost identical company. But if you're sitting on cash, you have a lot of flexibility on what you can do if the bones of your company or the bones of the idea that you're building is right. So a lot of companies, like as soon as the global memo went out that we're entering a new world, which went out, what, a year and a half ago or so to just everyone in the entire venture ecosystem, um, everyone got the memo and said, well, we've got money. We have a business, we have people, we have customers. How do we reconfigure all of this to make the money last longer? Try to outlast this environment, try to earn our way into our last valuation, uh, build a healthier business, 
and again, just in some ways, kick the can uh, to see if things are going to change. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a flight to quality around the metrics that matter, right? Not just about addition, you know, grow at all costs. And I, I think one of the things that astounded me, and I still look at the market and I kind of scratch my head at, and Shamir and I actually talk about this, like grumpy old men quite a bit. You know, if you look at, we launched Perk Street with $6 million. In fact, it was a $3 million first tranche, a $3 million second tranche. And now you look at these neobanks that are sitting on top of completely different rails, infrastructure that was not available to us. And they still say, oh, you know, first round is going to take us $25 million to get products out. Have we just been lost the efficiency or the grit? Why does it take so much more money when the infrastructure is so much better? Uh, it's a really good question. Um, there are a lot of different answers at the individual company level. But if you really think about the minimum size team that you need to accomplish a mission, you know that's the team that you should have when you first start out. And I think what the super cycle unfortunately taught founders, and I think the venture community was encouraging it, was to actually have a lot of ambition all at once. Mm. Right. So if you think about the old way of building things, you would stage your ambition. Right. Yeah. You would have to build a company in stages and say, okay, how much money can I raise? How much can I learn with that money? How do I do it efficiently? And then if I emerge from the other side of investing that money as a different company because we've de-risked, will that be attractive enough for the next uh, round of capital to come in to basically put a new learning agenda in place and de-risk another stage of the business? So a lot of these early teams that we founded it was, you know, a, a CEO, a front-end developer, a back-end developer, you know, probably a um, a generalist project manager that was working with everyone or working with getting vendor contracts signed, and then maybe some specialist depending on what the company needed around compliance or legal or, you know, fill in the blank. But you had these teams of four, five, six people. And, you know, with that team, you could get really far with very little money. Now, one of the things that's different, and you probably remember this, you know, we had companies where there wasn't a single person at the company that was paid more than, you know, 70 or $80,000 a year for years. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, money can go a lot farther when you're not paying people a lot. And, you know, the early teams were motivated by the mission, motivated by the equity, not motivated by maintaining a lifestyle that, you know, was very different, you know, than if they were working a corporate job. Um. You know, times are different. Things are more expensive. Like you can't just say live off of nothing. Like living in San Francisco now is more expensive than it was 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, so the, the world has changed. I think labor costs have gone up. Um, but the biggest problem is I think a lot of companies, they've, they've trained themselves to invest in multiple S-curves at the same time. And if I think about the biggest mistake, I think, that was made during the, the peak of the super cycle, it was having enough free-flowing capital that teams felt like they can invest in lots of things in parallel and hire the teams to go after it, which, by the way, minimizes your chance of success in any one of those S-curves. Yep. Right? It's a distraction. You end up burning a lot of cash. Your talent is spread very thin. Like, There's a lot of reasons why you shouldn't you know, work on lots of S-curves at the same time. Um, and I think that when the, the fintech cycle started back in 2008, no one had that option. 
So every single last person and every single last dollar spent was spent wisely. Well, you know, I like to call this the competitive advantage of desperation. So a lot of the incumbents aren't desperate enough to go try and leap to the next S curve because they're busy riding out the curve that works for them really well. And I like your analogy, you know, for those who aren't familiar, we're talking about the Clayton Christensen kind of S curve in terms of uh, the innovator's dilemma. Um, but this idea of going after multiple S curves simultaneously because you didn't have to be desperate and worrying about that cash running out actually gave you laser focus on what do I need to do to de-risk things. Now, yeah. spicy question for you now. Put something hot on. Let's have okay. let's do uh the scotch bonnet crushed sauce. This is this is gonna get me. When you're unable to complete the question, we know we we've reached peak. This is pretty hot. All right. So now you have businesses that were had too much ambition, were pursuing too much. So now they're sitting on ca- a lot of capital, but they also need to figure out what the business is. How do you actually go back and say, what do I actually need to go do? Because I sold this big vision, right? And it was spicy and people bought it. But now I actually need to go de-risk. How can I actually go back in time and kind of walk back my ambition to prove out what I really need to do? Well, it's very, very challenging because of, um, I'd say, a, a behavioral element of how people just naturally are. Um, and it revolves around anchoring to all-time highs. Hmm. So... If people that you're surrounded by, and that includes investors, that includes your management team, that includes the employees, if they anchor to all-time highs, it's one of the most dangerous behaviors and one of the most limiting behaviors, you know, that uh, you can have as, you know, an intellectually true individual that's trying to achieve big things. You know, uh, anchoring to all-time highs becomes a crutch. You know, uh, it creates depression. It creates negative thinking. Um, but the reality is you've got to look at what you've built. You've got to look at what you've learned. You've got to understand where you can go from here and how you can build from what you've built in the past. It's not about trying to regain the all-time high as quickly as you can. It's about just being a realist about what you've learned and what you can build. So the first thing is a little dose of medicine about saying, okay, this is the new world. Like, this is the cash we have. Uh, Either our business is or isn't attractive to bringing in new capital. If it's not attractive to bringing in new capital, I have to actually move the peas around on the plate in a very different way. I have to refactor my business model to do fewer things with fewer people and do those things well. And your goal is to describe a new path and anchor yourself against a new starting point, which could be an entirely different business or it could be just a subset of the businesses that, or the the things that you are pursuing and as a whole. You know, so I, I really like to think about CEOs, um, you know, founders as asset allocators, right? And they're allocating people and they're allocating money to basically doing three things. They're either building product, they're learning, uh, or they're scaling. Those are the only three things that you're actually putting money and people into. And guess what? Only the third one creates enterprise value, right? So 
But you have to earn your way to be to the third one. I think that's what one of the lessons out of the last few years is, you know, we skip step one and two and, you know, like the underwear pants gnomes skip to scale. That's right. I mean, so thing number one, you've got to build product, right? And I think in this world, it's now easier to build amazing product than it's ever been. And that's not taking away from the fact it takes skill to do that. It's just there are a lot more people, a lot more tools that, you know, it used to be magical when a team could build a product that you would look at and say, this just works. Now it's kind of a given that if you give a team money, like they're going to build something that is pretty good or they, they have the ability to hire the people and execute against that. So it's not about building. It's not about technical risk, except in some, you know, very esoteric categories where there is some technical risk where you're not sure it can be built. Um, but after you build it, it's about testing your hypothesis and saying, how much can I learn for how much money, how quickly? And if you're really good as an asset allocator, you can learn a lot very quickly, right? There are some businesses that you can't accelerate time. And if you can't accelerate time, you have to be much more cost disciplined to make sure you're not burning as much money while you're learning. But the goal is to learn as much as you can for as little money as you can as quickly as you can. So that's really the second stage that I think the discipline was lost. And then when you find something where you can uh, scale with positive unit economics, like you've learned that you have a product that people want that you can manufacture at a lower price than you can sell it for. Then it's about finding deep scalable channels and literally backing up the truck and putting money into those channels in a disciplined way, right? To make sure that you're not overspending and that you have a handle on the economics. But that's where you start generating economic value, the enterprise value for everyone. So thinking about some of the businesses where you can't accelerate time, your lending jumps out at me, right? Like the quality of our model and what we think, you know, it will look like you just can't accelerate. You know, you're fond of saying, you know, lending the money out is the easy part. The getting repaid is the hard part. How do you actually test, you know, some of those things where you can't accelerate time? Or thematically, is it something to say, hey, these should not be venture-backed businesses, like startups just shouldn't play there? So I wouldn't go so far as to say startups shouldn't play there. You just have to build them in a very different way, right? So there, there are certain companies that have different components to the business model that are very important in aggregate, but they could be learned separately. Okay. Right. So you can think about the front end of the machine, the middle of the machine, and the back end of the machine. The front end of the machine is about finding customers. It's about, is there demand for the product? It's about finding channels that you can originate at a price that you think is reasonable relative to the value of the customers. Right. And there are a lot of businesses where you can learn the front end of the machine, learn about reducing friction, learn about funnel management, you know, learn about what you think it will take to get a customer onboarded, independent of the other pieces. You know, the middle of the machine is where a lot of times you can't accelerate time, right? It's the actual product that you're delivering to the customer. So in the case of lending, I am giving someone money today for some use of proceeds, like for some reason, and I'm exchanging it for, um, you know, a series of payments that I'm going to get in the future that have volatility and variability associated with them. And if the loan is a three-year loan, I'm going to get paid over 36 statements, you know, 36 months. 
And for me to learn whether I'm getting repaid the way I think I should get repaid, it probably takes me 20, 25 statements to figure out if I'm on track, you know, to get paid for a 36-month vintage. So I can't do anything about that except build the lowest cost infrastructure from a burn standpoint while I learn. Right? I can learn more about the front end. I can learn more about bringing in good customers. Um, you know, I can learn that a lot faster than I can about the performance history in the middle of the machine. And the back end of the machine is about retention. It could be about, um, in the case of prop tech, it could be, do they buy the real estate at the end? It could be, you know, anything. But a lot of times, there's an, a back of the machine, and the back of the machine is something that you typically learn about much later. You know, you build up big customer bases, and then you see if you can cross-sell them things, or you see if you can retain them at different levels, or you can get them to spend more over time. Again, those are things on the back end of the machine that you can learn later. So I, I think it's just important to understand these things and to make sure that you're bringing in capital at the right pace, where each time that you bring in capital, it's because you've de-risked the business. And now you're describing a very different business that has proof without anti-proof that you're on the right track. So one of the challenges in this new world where infrastructure to build these businesses is much more available and finding a Baz bank, you know, you can't pass a bank without tripping over someone saying we're getting into Baz, right? And the ability to copycat, right? To say, hey, I want to actually skip through. I can look at what Frank's built on the front end of his machine and copy that and skip right to the second half of the machine. Is it making it harder to be the first mover? Is the second mover advantage, you know, the benefit? Um, I think quality of team matters. I think everyone's solution statement is a little bit different. But execution matters a lot. Um, you know, we say that all the time. I'm, I'm not a big fan of moats. I don't believe they really exist. I think that However fast it took you to build a business, someone else can take you down in the same amount of time. So I actually like doing the difficult things. Um, you know, if a business can be built in three months, I just believe it can be torn down so quickly that you've got to worry about copycats and leapfrogs and everything that comes with it. But if you describe an operationally intensive business, one that requires learning cycles, in some ways you're building um, some level of a mode because it just takes time to figure out what you need to figure out. Yeah. So I think quality of execution matters in some of the, the shallow wrappers that you put on top of things. They, they don't necessarily have durability unless you're doing something difficult. What's the most difficult area that you're focused on now? Um, so I would say there are a couple of very operationally intense businesses that we back. So we have a business called Mind, M-Y-N-D, that is a property management company for single-family rentals, right? So the SFR space. And they're basically, uh, you, you can think about AWS, uh, but for prop tech. And AWS rolled up, what, a couple million cost centers into a single profit center. And they had a team that knew how to do hundreds of steps better than the individual teams could do them you know, within the companies. So they were able to deliver a product of higher quality at lower cost at the same time and ended up dominating uh, the space. A lot of these AWS competitors are doing the same thing. Mind is doing that for property management, right? So property management has hundreds of steps involved in doing it well. 
And they're looking at every single one of them. They're automating the tasks that they can automate. They're adding technology where they can to make things easier. Uh, they're figuring out how to buy in bulk for the right products. They're, they're doing all of the things to basically make property management a higher quality service at lower cost for you know professional sources of capital. So it, it takes doing hundreds of things well, which, by the way, takes years to optimize. Um, and I like businesses like that because they're actually, they're hard, right? They're challenging to build. And that's a great example of vertical SaaS, right? Which I know it's in vogue, but you guys have been doing vertical SaaS before that was a thing. How do you wrestle with the challenge of the more narrow the vertical, say like single family rentals, right? Is a pretty narrow vertical within prop tech, which means you can go deep to do the hundred things right. But the more narrow the vertical that kind of gives you your motive things to do right also means you know, total addressable market becomes the challenge. How do you start to think about you know the tension between TAM and focus? Yeah. I mean, in the prop tech world, even these, these uh, slices of the ecosystem are gigantic, right? I mean, we have uh, a client at mine that wants to put a $5 billion buy order in for buying properties for them to manage. Like, there, it is a gigantic space. Yeah. But your, your point is well taken. A lot of these vertical SaaS uh, or just vertical opportunities in general, they don't have to be vertical SaaS. They could be vertical specialty finance. Yep. Um, you're really trading off being able to understand a problem incredibly well and have built for purpose software and processes that work better for the industry, and you're trading it off against TAM. Now, hopefully, you're also trading it off against how many competitors there are. So you have a chance in some of these highly verticalized industries, you know, to be one of a handful, like one of two or one of three, you know, big winners that end up dominating the space. You know, that's one way to actually square the circle for size. You also have the ability to extract more economic rent if you do more for the players in the space, if you've earned the right to actually do that over time. You know, so a lot of times you can solve a single problem for, you know, a player in an industry that then leads to permission. And I think about it as brand permission and operating permission to do other things, solve other problems on behalf of the customer. But the key is making sure that at least thing number one is a business in and of itself. Um, you know, one of the big changes between the old environment and today's environment is Act 2 and Act 3 businesses are really hard to fund. If Act 1 does not make money on its own. Yeah, it absolutely. Uh, one of my first mentors in venture capital told me revenues cover a lot of sins, profits cover all of them. Yes. Right. So let's spin this a little bit because one of these, you know, it, it's not narrow enough as a vertical, but everyone talks about, oh, fintechs and banks are no longer enemies, they're friends. I'm going to come solve a problem as a fintech for the bank. And I know you have some strong views on, does that actually work? And part of that is the pace of how they work, others' mindset, but I'd love for you to unpack that. So I think there are a lot of marriages that work really well on paper and don't work very well in the real world. And I think that's part of the problem with fintechs and banks trying to help each other. Uh, when we first started helping companies, we, we thought we would be the universal translator. Like we would be the ones that understood how banks think. And mm -hmm. we understand how, you know, fintechs think. 
And they were just talking past each other. And if you had a translator in the middle, you could figure out, you know, how to basically get these partnerships to really work. But it ends up that they have very different machinery, very different decision processes, very different pace of, uh, you know, how fast they move, very different incentive structures. And when you put all of that together, you have to find the right combination uh, or it's just not going to work. You know, I, I always think about one of the differences between uh, a startup and a large incumbent is that a large incumbent, if you're an executive managing a division within that incumbent, you can probably earn 90 to 95% of your bonus by saying no to everything new. Right? Like just do everything that you signed up to do with the things that you are already doing, do them a little better every year, and you can probably earn 90 to 95% of your bonus. Doing anything new rarely pays for itself quickly. There's risk associated with it. There's a chance of failure. Uh, there's expense. It's using up people, right, in terms of uh, resource allocation. So someone at a big company has to stick their neck out in order to say, this is something that I want to do because I think it fits into a, a bigger mission. At a startup, it's the opposite. Like your goal is to get to yes every day. Right. If you can't get to yes every day, you might as well just close the doors. Like you're just burning through cash if you get to no. So there's a huge difference in approaching problems. The startup says, yeah, people are telling me no. I just need to find a creative solution, a compliant solution, you know, one that works, one that isn't overly risky, but they're in problem solving mode because they need to get to yes every day. And the people that you hire know how to get to yes. Like that is the skill of a startup. So imagine these people that are trying to get to yes every day, working with a bank where there might be six or eight decision makers in the process. And it's a hurry up and wait where you only have 10 minutes of, you know, describing something and having a conversation about it before you get to a yes or no answer. But it could take you a month to get that meeting scheduled on someone's calendar. Right. And a lot of times they won't have the context or they don't have uh, the ability to make a decision without getting someone else's opinion. And that might take two weeks or four weeks to get on the calendar. So there's a huge difference in pace. There's a huge difference in incentives. And I think that makes partnership discussions very, very complicated. Well, and I think this is I can think of some very specific examples that we've looked at together where. Um, this entrepreneur takes the wrong signal out of the meeting, right? They think we were getting to yes coming out of that. And what they didn't realize is this was the first of 17 meetings in the course of 14 months to actually... And someone, do and someone was being polite, you know? Yeah, yeah, being polite. I think you know some of the examples I'm thinking of specifically. Um, where though does an incumbent it feels like saying no gets me my bonus in the short term, but I'm building up an existential threat because I'm not learning about what the new world is. I'm looking back at the old world. And I love the analogy that uh, Lita Gupta had in her writing last week. I don't know if you read her stuff at Pintech Futures, right? But it's the light of the dying star, right? So if we're so focused and say, ah, but look at everything is working great in banking and has for 117 years, doing something new, you know, sticks my neck out. Should I not be sticking my neck out until like I know the stars blowing up? Or if you're the incumbent, how how do you think about long-term prosperity? And so there's the incumbent, which is a 
machine that's consisting of people and processes and incentive systems, like it, it's not actually a, a single entity. It's a lot of parts and very complex. So to really unpack this question, you have to understand all of the details. So at some firms, the incentives are so skewed in the favor of not doing things new that you would actually have to be foolish to stick your neck out and do those things or recommend those things. There are other cultures where it's actually rewarded. And, you know, people are promoted for, you know, delivering outsized returns, you know, on a division basis or on a, you know, annual basis. So you really have to understand the incentive system. You have to understand the people. And I think you're going to find people who don't always fit that are pushing the envelope on what an organization can tolerate. I actually think it was one of the skills that I had at Capital One, and it was not on purpose. I actually didn't care if I got fired, right? I just cared about getting to the right answer. Like I felt like I reported to the right answer. I felt like I reported to just constantly advancing the businesses that I was responsible for. And, you know, because of that, I tried to get to yes every day, regardless of if the machine was trying to tell me the answer was no. Hmm. And occasionally you have, you know, people in organizations that are willing to think that way. And if they built up enough credibility, they can get things done. Um, but there are some organizations that there's so much organ rejection that it's hard for those people and those people end up leaving. So it's a very, very difficult thing. The, the other thing which I think is important while we're you know, drawing some of these analogies, the worst thing that a startup can do, uh, a founder, is fall in love with their own solution statement. Right? So you have a problem statement where it describes this big, hairy problem that people you know, still believe aren't solved. And if someone came with a solution, they would be willing to pay for that solution. Right. And what startups do is they create a solution statement. And the solution statement is how the founder thinks they are going to solve the problem such that they can manufacture something at a lower price than they can sell it. But they're not always right. Right. The market tells them whether they're right or wrong. And the best startups actually iterate very quickly because the founders and the founders and the founding team don't fall in love with their solution statement. They let the market tell them, you know, what's right. They fall in love with the problem statement and solving the problem. The problem at a big company, an incumbent, is because they need so many approvals, they definitionally have to fall in love with their solution statement because mm -hmm. that's what they're getting approval for. So they say, here's a problem. Let me outline a solution for you. And it's going to take me a year to actually put the team together, to put the code together, to get this thing tested and get this thing shipped. And they can't change because they're not getting market feedback along the way. And if they did get market feedback, they now need an entirely new set of approvals if they're going to change what that solution statement looks like. They have to run the it, gauntlet again every single time. They not only need to run the gauntlet, but you actually, at the start of the gauntlet, have to say, I'm running this gauntlet again because what I told you last time didn't pan out. That's right. So, I mean, think about definitionally incumbents fall in love with solution statements. Right. And in some ways, if it takes them a long time to get the solution into the market, it's like, you know, again, uh, coding to the past. Yeah. Right. It's the dying light of a star. Um, you know, so you're actually seeing into the past 
So if it took you a year to put all of the uh, code together in order to do things, you're actually coding to a problem statement that you have from the past. Well, and I think this is where it's easy to also, as an incumbent, to fall in love with doing nothing as a safe strategy because I don't have to run that gauntlet that you described, but it also then becomes very easy to stay complacent because yes. I, I'm coding to that. I like how you're saying, you know, I'm coding to the old problem statement is it, let me keep recoding my forward-looking business against the problem I've already solved in the past and that stays safe. Yes. And again, they might be wrong, right? So if you end up being wrong, then... Uh, you've spent all of this money, credibility points with all of the people within your organization, and then going back to say, we still like the problem statement, let's try again. How many times do you do that before they give up and say, like, we're just shutting this down, it's not working? Yeah, absolutely. So as we come to a close here, um, what was one of your favorite of the hot sauces that you had today? And two, uh, I, I do like the crushed scotch bonnet pepper. Very, yeah. very hot, but very good. Yeah. And second, what are you reading over the summer? So I don't read business books. You know, I try to avoid them because I deal with that during the day. So I, I read a lot of science fiction. Um, so you can name uh, a lot of the in vogue books. Uh, I've been consuming them pretty rapidly. Nice. Fantastic. Well, thanks for taking the time, Frank, and always love having you on the show and hearing your thoughts. That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Elizabeth Severins, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media. Or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast. And in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.